If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Luke. And if you are in need of a Bible, we may have some in the back. I'll ask you to raise your hand, and if we have some, one of the ushers can bring you a Bible. Luke chapter 16 is where we're at today. If you'll turn there, Luke chapter 16. I want to draw your attention to a handout in your bulletin uh, as you turn in your Bibles. We have a Christmas party coming up. December 13th, I think it is. Does that sound right? Friday, December 13th. And it's going to be at Carday's Mansion. Facts. Um, Carday does live in a mansion. That is a true statement. And it will be at his house. Now, Carday only lives in one-eighth of the mansion. One-sixteenth of the mansion. Um, Beautiful house on Utah Place, and uh, we're going to have a party there on December 13th. So we're going to register online. Most everybody has some way to access the Internet. It's the easiest way to collect registrations. You see a link there, and uh, reserve your spot online. Um, If you can't access the Internet, just let us know, and we'll do it for you. Well, this morning we're coming out of Luke chapter 16, and I want to talk to you on the theme, check your hearts, and then in parentheses, before you check your wallets. You like that? That's a little more creative than most of my titles. Check your hearts before you check your wallets. Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Please follow along as I read. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was, a la- was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels <clears throat> to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, And Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those 
who would pass from here to you may not be able to enter, may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray together and let's ask God to help us as we study. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you right now for this passage that is before us. I pray, God, that you would help me communicate your word and only your word to your people. I pray that anything uh, that would be unhelpful or distracting or wrong that I say uh, would not be remembered. Uh, I pray that I wouldn't, wouldn't communicate any of that. But God, that uh, you would give me the uh, ability to communicate your truth and apply it this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's been said that a machine or an instrument is unable to give you anything. For example, you might have a Keurig that produces a cup of coffee, but we can't rightly say that the Keurig gives you coffee. It's unable to give. Or a massage chair that has the capabilities of massaging your shoulders. However, we want to rightly be able to say that the massage chair gives you a massage. It cannot give because it does not have a will, heart, or desire. You must have a heart. You must have a desire. You must have a will in order to be able to give. Another example could be the keyboard that was played this morning. As Leo plays the keyboard, the keyboard produces the sounds through which we and Leo give praise to God, but we can't say the keyboard, that's actually producing the sounds, we can't say the keyboard is giving praise to God because the keyboard doesn't have a heart. Now, in the same way, a human who tries to give praise to God, disconnected from his or her heart is no more giving anything to God than the keyboard. A human that reluctantly gives away some of their money without their heart is no more giving than a massage chair. The last uh, couple, well, just last week and this week, I guess, we've been talking about money. And if you think, oh my goodness, the Garden Church talks about money every Sunday, that's because you are brand new. Welcome. (laughs) Um, We just preached through the Bible and we're in Luke 16. And Luke 16 is about money and stewardship. Last week we saw this parable. This week we look at another parable. Before I get into it, let me kind of frame this whole money and heart issue. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, 
It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As Paul there is instructing on giving to and through the church, he's saying it has to be done with, a, uh, uh, with their heart. Now, a lot of times we interpret this to mean, well, I don't really want to give in my heart, so therefore the godly thing for me to do is to keep all of my resources to myself because it would be wrong for me to give uh, if I can't do it cheerfully. I actually had someone tell me that once. They said, uh, I, I asked them, we were in an accountability relationship, and I said, how often, how's your giving? And they said, well, I can't give cheerfully, so the right thing for me to do is to not give at all. It's concerning that only two of you laughed at that. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> the issue uh, that we're, Paul's trying to get at is, is to not give us a good excuse to not give, but what he's saying is that you need a renewed heart. He's saying that as you give, you need to give out of, not out of legalism, not out of compulsion, not out of someone pressuring you, but you need to give out of the newness of your heart. Heart. That's what we're getting at in our passage today. There are two sections to this passage. There's a teaching section, and then there's a parable section. First, let's look at the teaching section. Check your hearts, because God, His standards are unchanging. That's my heading for Jesus' teaching section. Check your hearts, because God's standards are unchanging. Remember last week in verses 1 through 13, we saw a parable. It was a parable about stewardship, how to handle your money and how to understand that God owns all things, and so therefore we give as a, a, a steward. Uh, we're going to get to another parable in verses 17 through 31. Again, it has money as the focus. In some ways, this parable is a parable about what it looks like when we love money and the end result. And then we have this strange teaching portion in between, verses 14 through verses 18, and they almost seem disconnected from each other and from these two parables about money. But I want to try to show you right now that this teaching section, verses 14 through 18, is really a bridge between two parables. We're talking about stewardship, and we're talking about the end result of loving money, and he's going to use this bridge to get us there. Now, before he does, he gives a little narrative. He talks about the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus' teaching. In verse 13, Jesus just said, you can't love God and money. Verse 14, this is the parables, uh, I'm sorry, the Pharisees' response. Uh, they are ridiculing him. Why? I need some help. Because they were lovers, he says in verse 14, they were lovers of Money. Let's pause for a second. You would have never guessed that just looking at the Pharisees. They appeared to be some of the most generous people in the community. They appeared to be so pious. They may not have even had much money. They, how, how could we call them a, a lover of money? They even dropped coins into the offering box for the poor. But Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 too that they would only do it with the sound of the trumpet. 
announcing to the community all around them that I am a generous individual. They were lovers of money. Their issue wasn't so much with their actions. Their issue was with their heart. And this good deed would then be deplorable. Why is it deplorable to give money to the poor when you're doing it for the praise of mankind? Well, look at verse 15. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before man. But God knows your hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil every day. Genesis 8, verse 21. The Pharisees justified their greediness. The Pharisees knew how to love money but kind of make themselves feel better about it and make themselves feel right. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Their issue was the heart. The Pharisees are callous to the suffering of the world around them because they love their comforts, they love their joy, they love their pleasures, and the way that we get all of those things is through money, so therefore they love money. Last year we had a fundraiser for One Hope around Christmas time, and I gave a little speech at the fundraiser. And in my speech, I, I didn't plan to do this, but I kind of went off on this little rant of, uh, uh, like, I, I basically said, here you are, uh, ignoring the poor all year long, and now you're going to give a little bit of money to make yourself feel better. And uh, a mentor of mine afterward told me that probably wasn't the best way <laughs> to talk to your potential funders. <laughs> And I think he was right, <laughs> because I haven't seen a lot of them since. Um, Stephanie needs to give the speech next time. <laughs> but I get frustrated sometimes, and I probably get just as frustrated with myself. When we know how to ignore suffering all around us, and we know how to do just a little bit to make ourselves feel better about the facts that we are callous to the fact that people are lost and dying and going to hell. This is the Pharisees' issue. They were real good at justifying themselves through doing a tiny bit of good. Church, the human heart, fallen without Christ, is absolutely corrupt. That is the state into which we are born as human beings with a corrupt and broken, nasty heart. The reason 
This is so uh, 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 terrible and disgusting before God. Verse 15, he continues, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Meaning, Pharisees, you might put some money in the coffer. You might do a little bit of good to justify yourselves, but if, you, if that is exalted before men, like if, if my generosity becomes my, my pride and joy, it sits on the throne for all to see. Because really what I want stroked is my ego. And I need people to see how good and great I am. Even the good things we do, church, what he's saying is, is what is anything that is exalted among men? And what he's saying there is, is not just something, something simply that people praise, but it's put into the place of God. It's exalted. It's worshipped. It's praised. It's, it's set on high. We might not use religious language when we talk about it, but what we're saying is, is hallelujah. Anything that is exalted among men is an abomination before God. And then he goes on. In verse 16, he talks about the endurance of the Scriptures. And it's kind of confusing at first, but essentially what he's saying is that the law of the prophets, they were until John. Meaning John the Baptist came, and that was the end of the Old Testament. And the beginning of the new. So John, if you have the Old Testament here, John has one foot in the Old and then one foot in the New Testament. And he's sort of the link between the two. And over here in the Old Testament, we have all of these laws, these ethical principles that govern the nation of Israel. And he's saying John fulfilled that and then something new began. And at, at, from that point on, he says, at, or the stage in which we are now living... It's the stage of uh, the, this, this kingdom, the kingdom of God, and he says, and everyone forces his way into it. Another way that you can interpret that would be everyone is insistently uh, uh, asked to come in or, or pled with to come in, meaning they, we are, uh, uh, Jesus is going around and, and forcibly encouraging people to repent and believe. That's one way that that could be interpreted, and I think that's probably Probably the best interpretation. The point, though, is this, is that John fulfills the law, or Jesus fulfills the law. The New Testament, what comes, fulfills the law, and there is this new era. But then he goes on to say, however, verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So he's saying, I'm not, or he, he's saying, by saying that the law has come to an end is not to say that it is irrelevant. Is not to say that it is void. To say that the law is fulfilled in Christ is not to say that you don't have to worry about the ethical principles of Scripture. There's not one jot or tittle or period or comma that is ever, the moon will pass away before any of God's moral standards are become irrelevant. The scriptures, he's saying, endure. Well, how does the law endure through Christ? Just that. It's through Christ. The law of Christ. We follow Jesus. The law is fulfilled in him. And then he goes on to illustrate this. 
in verse 18, he talks about divorce and remarriage. It seems really weird. Like, why all of a sudden does he talk about divorce and remarriage in the middle of this money talk? Well, I think it's because this is just an illustration of the endurance of scriptures and its meaning for our lives today. I don't think he's trying to give Jesus full teaching on divorce and remarriage. We can cover that elsewhere. I don't want to make my sermon about divorce and remarriage as important as it is because I don't think that's the point of the text. What he's getting at is, 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 is an issue that the Pharisees would have been pretty familiar with. The Pharisees had a fine way of twisting Moses as it relates to divorce and remarriage and basically making divorce allowable in remarriage for every and any situation. So if a man was unhappy with the way that his wife cooked a meal, one Pharisee said, you're allowed to divorce her for that. That's okay. Another Pharisee said, if you find another female that's more pretty than your wife, you can divorce your wife. Meaning the Pharisees have a fine way of ignoring the Scriptures. And so what Jesus is saying is, is look, if you divorce your wife and marriage, you're committing adultery. Meaning you can't just simply take God's law and twist it for your selfish purposes without reaping the condemnation that comes with that. Does that make sense? So he's illustrating something to get it back at this point, and that's the way that they see generosity and money and resources. Uh, as I was preparing for this, this talk, I read 28 different Old Testament passages that they would have been familiar with that talk about caring for the poor. And I think what his point is, is simply this, is that Moses isn't enough for them. The Scriptures aren't enough for them. They don't obey the Bible. They don't trust the Bible. They don't care about the ethical principles that God has made clear in the Bible. And for them, they just want something more. Are you with me still? We're going to keep going if that's all right. Thank you. So that's the teaching section, and then he moves into a parable. The parable, I think, is to illustrate the teaching section. It's a well-known parable that many of you have probably heard or read, the parable of rich man, the rich man and Lazarus. In verse 15, Jesus says, whatever is exalted among men becomes a condemnation. And I think here's a parable of a man who would have been exalted among men. A rich man. Two characters. We see this great contrast between the two. The rich man and this poor man named Lazarus. The rich man, verse 19, is clothed with purple and fine linen. That would, have been, that would have been the nicest threads of the day, like the nicest clothing that money can buy is what this man would have worn. Contrast that with what the poor man is covered in. Verse 20, he's covered in sores. The rich man, he says, feasts sumptuously every day. I hardly even know what the word sumptuously means, but it sounds delicious. In verse 21, contrast that with the poor man. 
says he desires to be fed with what falls from the rich man's table. Notice he doesn't even eat it. It says he desires to be fed with it. The, the picture here is that the rich man will uh, allow the dogs to eat what falls from his table, but he won't even allow the poor man covered in sores at his gate to eat the crap that falls from his table. He's starving. He's poor. It gets worse. Verse 21, the dogs lick his sores. Not only is that painful, but that would put him into the category of one who is unclean. Dogs were an unclean animal according to the ceremonial law of the Jews. To be licked by the dogs constantly would, would mean that he is covered in the stench of sin. The rich man looks good to the world. The poor man looks very bad to the world. If you were to just stumble upon these men, you would assume that the rich man is favored by God. He is walking according to the promises and the blessings of God. And if you looked at the poor man, if you even noticed him, you would assume that he is on his way to hell. Well, as the story goes on, the rich man and the poor man both die. And the contrast continues in the reverse. The poor man is taken by the angels to Abraham's side. This is a nickname for heaven. Heaven is, according to the Jews, this, this feast, this table. And so we have this picture of Abraham sitting at the center of the table, most likely. And just to his side, there sits Lazarus, the poor man, eating, feasting in heaven. The rich man, he dies and he goes to Hades. This is a nickname for hell in verse 23 where he is in torment. Tormented by the flames, it says. There is a, 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 a great chasm between the two and while the rich man uh, in, in this parable can see Lazarus, there's no way that one could cross from one to the other because God's judgments are unchangeable. We know this because Abraham tells the man in verse 26, Lazarus can't come to you, and you can't come to Lazarus. The Abraham tells the man this because the man had the audacity to make a demand. We see his first demand in verse 24. Look at it with me. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Isn't it amazing that this man is making a demand of Lazarus. Isn't it shocking to see someone who is so proud, so puffed up on what he believes he deserves, that he can look across 
and see this man that he recognized at his gate, see a man that he never lifted a finger to help and to make a demand on him and say, have that guy bring me some water. Oh, the pride of the sinner. He makes a second demand in verse 27. He says, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn, warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The point of this parable is, is clear. You can be rich in this world and poor before God. Or we can flip that around to God be the glory. You can be poor in this world and very rich before God. This is why, church, we have to check our hearts. Check your hearts. Now, how do we check our hearts? Let me draw out three lessons from this text, from this parable. Three questions that we can ask ourselves this morning as we check our hearts. Number one, where are you rich? Where are you rich? Or I could ask this another way. Where do you desire to be rich? Because some of you say, I definitely ain't rich here. (laughs) So let me ask it another way. Where do you desire to be rich? As many of you know, my wife and I went to Scotland last month, and when we came back from Scotland, we had some uh, British money in our pockets, cash, pounds. Beautiful. They're, dollar, they're pounds, pound bills. I don't know what you call them. They're, they look a lot prettier than ours. But you know what we could buy over here with one of, one of their bills? Nothing. Nothing. Do you know what your worldly goods can buy you in the kingdom of God? Nothing. It's a different economy. The kind of money we use here is not the kind of money that they use there. The kind of riches here are entirely different than the kind of riches there. The things that we can amass in this world can get you absolutely nothing in the kingdom of God. This parable is about a rich man who had all of the world's goods but was broke before God. Where do you desire to be rich? Do you desire to be rich here in this world? Or do you desire to be rich before God? Is money, is cash... Is achieving cash the fulfillment of your dreams? Or is money and cash merely a tool to be used for the glory of God in this world? As we approach Christmas, don't get me started. Oh, I just just started. As we approach Christmas, is this an opportunity for those of you who have kids? to teach our kids 
what eternal joy is all about? Or is this an opportunity for us to follow the notes of the world and just get our kids everything that they want and have a Christmas tree that is so piled with worldly goods and have a bank account that is broke and a credit card that is maxed out. You know what I'm talking about. Only to show our kids on the 25th that their real hope is in this world. It isn't really joy in the next. It's joy now. Only to show our kids that there is no real hope in this because, by the way, you live that kind of life and on Christmas, the kids got everything they want and they're depressed. Why? It's because material things do not bring your kids joy. And listen, get that into your brain, get that into the culture of your family now before you start swiping your card. Tell your kids, this year we're doing three presents that's all Jesus got. <laughs> Three presents. We're keeping it simple. I'm, I'm writing you, I'm going to draw you a picture for your present this year. You know, one year, this is years ago, my family and I were getting together. This is my family in Ohio, my, my whole family. And we, we were all broke. And someone said something to the effect of, we're not going to be able to do Christmas this year. And that stuck with me. We think getting stuff is the definition of what it means to do Christmas. And if you can't get stuff, then that means, oh, we don't have any Christmas. What is your definition of the incarnation? And so what we did that year was we said, all right, nobody's buying anything material. The only gift we're giving people is the gift of various relationships. So, like, we would draw things and write, I, I'd, like, wrote a, a song for my grandfather and my, somebody wrote a poem for somebody else and somebody else took somebody to Starbucks and that was their gift and like it was just like just relational all right that was a little rant but that applies to where we're going and that is this is our hope in heaven or on earth are, are we storing up treasures in heaven or are we storing up treasures on earth, we've got to talk about money in the church. We've got to talk about our view of money. If you have a one-on-one -on -one accountability partner, I hope you guys talk about money regularly. We, we have accountability uh, uh, questions that you can download on the church website that will help guide you through a number of questions as you get together one-on-one -on -one in a relationship. One of those questions that I ask the guys that I meet with is this. Have you been good and faithful with what God has given you in terms of time, money, and gifts. This is an area that we need to be holding each other accountable. What is your view of money, and are you rightly using it? Are you glorifying God with it? Now, let me also say this. This parable is not to glorify the poor. This poor man is no more saved for being poor than the rich man goes to hell just simply for having money. We shouldn't hope to be poor. We shouldn't strive to be poor, and we shouldn't keep other people poor if we have anything to do about it. However, we do see this about poverty. Spiritually, we must realize that we are poor. 
before God without Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've ever considered the fact that your heavenly bank account is broke. I wonder if you've ever considered the fact that you are going to stand before God and have absolutely nothing. There is a sense in which every single one of us must come to God as this poor man came to God. Not necessarily through physical poverty, but through spiritual poverty. To say, God, I have nothing. I have nothing. And I come to Christ for everything. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I claim. Number one, where do you desire to be rich? Number two, who knows your name? Who knows your name? A guy that I knew a couple years ago, he told me that years before that, he had met uh, Bill Clinton. And he, this is before Clinton was the president. And he introduced himself to Clinton and uh, gave Clinton his name. And then a couple years later, after Clinton had become the president, he said he met Bill Clinton for the second time. And Clinton looked at the man, called him by his name, and asked him a couple questions. He said, I was blown away. Do you know that when somebody remembers your name, it matters? Like, you know, when somebody remembers your name, it's like there's, it's meaningful. There's a sense of like, wow, you know me. There's a sense of, of like, man, this, there's like an intimacy here. On the flip side, if you can't remember somebody's name, you know how embarrassing that is? Like, I'm walking down the street with Montrell, and I see my neighbor, and I'm like, hey, Jeff, hey, this is my, uh, uh, this is an associate pastor at my church, uh, Montrell. Yep, Montrell. Like, I know, I should know his name. <laughs> Isn't it crazy how we can forget a name that we should know? And you, you know it's embarrassing because that communicates something that you don't want to communicate to that individual. Like, you really do like them. You really do know them. But you just communicated that you don't when you don't remember their name. Let me ask you this. As it relates to your name, who knows it? The world or God? Who knows your name? Who do you desire to know your name? The rich man probably had a name that was very well known. He probably had a very strong reputation in the community. When people heard his name, it was associated with wealth and all of these good things. When people heard his name, there, there, there was a, a sense of respectability to it, and people wanted to be around him, and he probably had crowds regularly at his house. The poor man, nobody knew his name in this world. Nobody even recognized him sitting at the gate. They would step over him without even realizing they stepped over a human being. But God knew his name. In this parable, I wonder if you noticed that the rich man is never named. The poor man is called Lazarus. Lazarus. Let's all say that together. Lazarus. Lazarus. 
His name is Lazarus. 2,000 years later, here we are declaring the name of this poor man. Now, this is a parable. It probably is not a true story. It's symbolic. And the rich man is a symbol of every single human being who put their hope in their name and reputation in this world and is nameless before God. The poor man is a symbol of every single human being who came with nothing before God and said, I only have Jesus. And they have a name that is written down in glory. Do you believe your importance is defined by people here? If you're a Christian, do you realize that you have a name that is written down in heaven? It's been written there, as Eric pointed out in our Bible study a couple weeks ago on Wednesday nights. It's been written there since before creation. God knows your name, and God doesn't forget the name of his friends. How do we have a name in heaven? It's because Jesus Christ gave up a name. He became of no reputation. He came into this world being God of, of God, light of light. He came into this world and he took on the role of a servant. And as a servant, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and he lived for us and on our behalf. And as Jesus died on the cross, he took the wrath that my name deserved. It was for me he died. He took the punishment for me. It buried him. Put him in the tomb. And then three days later, the stone rolled away and God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And God gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have a name because He has a name. My name is in Christ. He is mine and I am His. Oh, all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ are forgiven of your sin and cleansed from all unrighteousness and have the promise that you will be raised with Jesus one day. You are known in heaven. Does that matter to you? Is that where you define your importance? In Christ, not in this world. Where do you want your name to be known? Thirdly, on what authority is your life based? On what authority is your life based? The parable ends with a little dialogue between Abraham and the rich man. Abraham says to the rich man, no, I'm not going to send Lazarus to be your slave to go do what you want him to do to go tell your brothers. And 
And the, poor, the, the rich man says in verse 30, in response to Abraham, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Meaning, Moses and the prophets, a nickname for what? The Old Testament, the scriptures that they have. He's saying, look, they have the Bible. They have the Bible. They've got the scriptures. Let your brothers hear God's word. In verse 30, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You see, the problem with the rich man is that the scriptures were never sufficient. No, the word of God, he says, is not enough. They need some kind of sign. They need something extra. They need something additional. And this shows his issue. The word of God was never sufficient. The rich man never believed God's word. The rich man never trusted God's word. The rich man never obeyed God's word. His hope was always in his money, in his name, in his recognition, in his status. And as a result, he was an enemy of God. And Abraham is right in verse 31 as he responds to him. He says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, look at this, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, that's, that's a hint of what's to come. Jesus Christ is going to rise from the dead. And what he's saying is this, is Pharisees, even that won't be enough for you because you hate God's word. You love your status. You love your money. You love your things. You find your hope in the world, world's goods. That is your God. God's word is not enough for you. You need more. Jesus Christ is going to rise from the dead and even that won't make you believe because you've already rejected Him. You've already rejected God's Word. Church, their issue was not just simply an issue of their actions. It was an issue of their heart. It wasn't just the fact that they had money. It's the fact that they grew callous to the suffering of the world around them because they loved their money. Do you know how a worm gets that inside of an apple? I always thought a worm crawled into the apple. And then I read that question somewhere, and I, was, and I thought about it, and I was like, you know, I grew up in Ohio, and we had an apple tree in our backyard. You would never see a little wormhole on the apple. How did the worm get inside the apple? Well, here's how. When, when, when the tree is budding on a little apple bud, a moth lays some larva. And an apple grows around that larva. And the worm is then birthed inside the apple. Your problem does not come from the outside in. But your problem comes from the inside out. Our problem is within us. From the heart comes the worm. From the heart births all of the sinful 
problems that we have in our lives, don't you know that your problems are not simply fixed when you change your actions, but your problems are an issue of the heart? Your stinginess, your lack of generosity is a product not of your hands, but of your heart. Oh, we've got to fall on our knees and cry out with David in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and create a right spirit within me. And we've got to hear the promise that God gives His people in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where God says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit and I will put it within you. That is the gospel is that God changes our hearts and the Scriptures go on. As He changes us, we're saved. For with the heart, Romans says, one believes and is justified. How are we, how are we made right? Not through self-justification, but through God giving us a new heart of faith and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We seek money, we will end with nothing. Seek God and you will find everything. Seek God and there is no room to seek money. Jeremiah continues, God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Church, praise God that you are seeking him this morning. Praise God for the miracle of regeneration. Praise God for the miracle of giving you a new heart, a heart that desires Him, a heart that exalts Him and Him alone. And so we're not generous out of compulsion, but we are as a cheerful giver because our giving comes out of a renewed heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the heart that we have been given by the Holy Spirit as you have indwelled us, regenerated us, made us new. God, as we delight in our new position before you, as we delight in this new heart that we have, I pray, God, that we will be a people who display to the world what it looks like to not exalt the things of this world, but rather to use the resources that are ours that you've entrusted to us to glorify your name in all of the earth. It's in the name that is above every name that we bow, that we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.